0: Is singleness a gift or a curse? If you're single, I don't mean just never married, but also single because of divorce or maybe death. Do you sometimes feel you're just in a waiting room, marking time until you meet the right person? Or is singleness a place filled with opportunities you would not have if you were married? Is it wrong to pray for a spouse? How do you respond when well-meaning friends say hurtful things like, I don't understand why some guy hasn't snatched you up. You're so nice. Well, I'm Sharon Betters, and I am the host of today's Help & Hope podcast, and we're going to talk about these questions and much more with my guest, Jenny Lynn Sweat. Jenny Lynn serves as the Director of Adult Ministries at Restoration Community Church in St. Louis. and She is the author of a book called Singleness, Living Faithfully. So she is the right person to come to with these questions. Jenny Lynn, welcome.
1: Thank you for having me, Sharon.
0: Before we jump into our topic, tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Yes, so I am originally from Minnesota. Uh, I moved to St. Louis about 12 years ago to attend Covenant Seminary. And after getting my MDiv there, came on staff at the church that I'd been a member at during seminary and have been serving here for a number of years. Uh, Since then, and I love getting to serve the church, even as the church is in many ways, my family and and primary community. So I'm really thankful for that and enjoy getting to to build relationships here and enjoy getting to spend time with people over good food. That's one of my favorite things to enjoy and, and talk about and make. So enjoy that and enjoy writing and reading and that kind of thing, too. And so I'm excited to get to share this book that I've written um, and hope that it, it encourages many people who are in a similar spot to me as a single person. Well, tell us why you wrote this book. So I am 40 and I've never been married and have always wanted to be. And as I grew up in the church, heard a lot about preparation for marriage and kind of saw marriage as something that would probably be in my future and as the years have gone by and the Lord has kept me single I have really looked for resources I have looked for guidance on what singleness is supposed to look like and how to live in this season that isn't one that I would have chosen for myself hmm. and have often struggled to find such resources and have even struggled to to hear from pastors and ministry leaders who haven't experienced extended singleness so it's been important to me as I've done a lot of my own thinking and writing and as the Lord has taught me through this uh, to be able to contribute a resource that might
0: help someone who's asking similar questions to those that that I've been wrestling with for the past number of years. Well, I want to recommend your book, uh, Singleness, uh, for all the reasons that you just mentioned. It is a great resource and it's like a devotional. So mm-hmm. it doesn't just you don't just read. You have an opportunity to respond uh, on a very personal level. So. I highly recommend it to our listeners. In your book, you say no one ever mentioned the possibility that marriage might not be on the horizon. Singleness felt like a disease that needed to be cured. How did singleness feel to you? And why? Yeah, it for many
1: years has felt like a problem. It has felt like something that needed to be fixed, needed to be changed. It has felt like a burden in many ways. It has felt at times like almost like a declaration that I am. If I'm honest, it feels like I am. I'm not worthy of marriage or of of someone wanting to marry me. Um, so it can feel like a declaration on on who I am, and and that is something. It it still feels like all of those things oftentimes. But um, I have started over the past few years to really see that there are opportunities to it and that. Singleness is just another place in which to live life, just as as marriage is a place or we can think of it as a season or a place to live our lives and serve and be obedient to what God would call us to. And it has challenges, certainly, but also has blessings and opportunities, just as marriage
0: does. I love that you talk about kind of like you're in a waiting room. But are you really in a waiting room? And I, it reminded me of a friend, a young woman who was asking about an, an opportunity she had to go to a foreign country and to be a missionary, short-term missionary. Uh, but she was in love with a young man. He was also going overseas to go to school. And her question was, do, you know, should I just wait for him to come back or... What what should I do? And I remember saying your your singleness is not a waiting room. You're not waiting to live. You're living right now. And so take advantage of the opportunities that you when you get married, you will not have these opportunities the way that you do now. It's not a waiting room. So I think it's important. Actually, I think it's important for all of us, no matter what the experience we are in, is to say, this is life. This is where I am right now. And what opportunities does God have for us right here? Right now, good good opportunities. Absolutely. What are some of the questions that people might ask a single person that are difficult for you to you know make might make, make you feel uncomfortable? Educate us.
1: Yes, I think you know probably the the first question is uh, a, a question that indicates the assumption that I am married and have children. I have had many conversations with people who you know when we're in our initial getting to know one another they will say you know if we're standing in a crowded church fellowship room they'll say oh well where is your husband or are are these your kids and that there's always a little bit of awkwardness in knowing how to respond to that but i think it's it's those questions that lead with the assumption that because i am an adult woman i am probably married those are those are tricky to answer i think there are questions that come from Friends and that are close to me and people that I trust that are very welcome. But when there are people that I do not know as well who ask about my dating life or ask about, you know, my experience of, you know, are you online dating or are you doing these things? Those can be tricky questions to know how to answer because that's a pretty nuanced and personal thing. Yeah. Um, again, I'm glad to talk about it with my close friends, but um, when it gets beyond that, it it gets a little bit trickier. And I think. Sometimes more than the questions, what makes me uncomfortable are the statements that people make things like, I'm sure God has someone great in mind for you. Or, you know, you mentioned it earlier, that notion of, I can't believe someone like you isn't married. And there's, there's a lot in statements like those that doesn't actually align with the truth of how we know God to be at work.
0: And how do you respond? I know you can't respond to every single one of those, but I mean, generally, how do you prepare your heart to be in those situations that knowing you've been there, you'll probably be there again. And we live in a culture where there seem to be no filters, you know, where there's no privacy. People feel as though they can ask anything, say anything. How do you prepare your heart for that?
1: It's a great question. I try to pray and, and ask God for grace, that I would be gracious and thoughtful in how I respond to people, that I would have wisdom in knowing when to just answer the question in a sentence and move the conversation along, Mm -hmm. and when to maybe say a little bit more, when to maybe push back on an underlying assumption that they're making. Sometimes when people ask if I have kids, sometimes I just say, no, I don't. Sometimes I say, no, but I have a lot of kids in my life that I really love and care for and I'm excited to get to help be a part of their life. And so I need wisdom and knowing, knowing kind of which answer to choose, given the context of the situation, given the relationship
0: um, and what my role is in that conversation. Our 16-year-old son, Mark, and his friend, Kelly, were in a fatal car accident. And uh, we experienced people saying things to us that when they said them, they felt inconsiderate and unfeeling and very hurtful. And I was talking to a friend about it. And she said, try to remember that most of them, they are not trying to hurt you. They're trying to connect with you. They're trying to help you encourage you if you can just try to remember. That helped me to give people grace. Yeah. Not just needing yeah. grace myself, but giving people grace, and and like you said, kind of changing the subject, not picking and choosing your battles. You yeah. only have so much energy, so yeah. where, where are you yeah. going to put it? Yeah, but Certainly. but I think it's good to hear from you for us to be, you know, to think, be be a little be a little more careful in the way that we speak, because probably most people aren't even thinking that those statements could be offensive in any way, so. You mentioned that, and and I believe your book is for more than people who haven't been married. I think it's for anyone who could be single through divorce, wanted or unwanted death. But I also think it's good for people who are married, uh, who are not single, because it gives us insight into your heart and the heart of so many others. But why do you think it's important to recognize that even though you might be married now, at some point especially for women, there is going to be a time of singleness because men die usually sooner than their wives. Why do you think it's important for us to have that, maybe not in the front of our minds, but in the back of our minds to help prepare us for that time?
1: It is a hard truth to reckon with. And I I can imagine that if I were married right now, that would be something I wouldn't want to think about the reality of. But I think being honest about the fact that You know, half of people who are married will be single again, even if it's for a short time. And, you know, after losing a spouse, I think that's something that does a few things for us. I think it helps us corporately to remember that marriage is not the be all end all. It is not the ultimate goal of our lives because we do stand before God as individual people and as, as single individuals, rather than as. A husband or a wife, so I think that's important. I also think it's it helps us not to to think about singleness and the potential of being single again. Um, I think to think about that now helps us not to be quite so afraid of the future, and to know that that for people, for widows, I've, I've talked to a few widows in the course of this book coming out, and for them to know, oh, I'm not alone in some of the questions I'm asking. I'm not alone in some of the things that I'm wrestling with and to help us all find that there's actually more that we have in common than that is different
0: between those of us who are single and those who are married. You talk a lot about identity, finding your identity, not in what you do, but who you are. And I would think that that would be preparation for that unexpected season of uh, uh, being alone. Talk to us about that. What, what do you mean when, when you talk about understanding your identity and how that helps you, w- whatever season of life you were in?
1: So in the book, I talk about my kind of initial realization of the fact that I've been putting my, my identity in a lot of things that were not permanent you know, developing my identity as a college student in in who I was in my campus organizations, who I was, you know, in, in ways that I served, jobs I held, and then graduating from college and realizing that none of those things meant anything when I moved to a different city and was with different people. And that really challenged me to think about what are the things that are going to be unchanging about who I am. And the answer to that question is that the only thing that will never change about who we are is that I am a daughter of God. I have been adopted by him. Jesus Christ is my elder brother. And that is the one thing that will never change. Whether my address changes, my job title, whether I become a wife and a mother, that will never change. And that is something that, that I need to cling to because it is a source of, truth and stability for the entirety of my life. And it also helps to remind me that that is where my worth comes from. So the fact that I am not a wife, not a mother does not mean that I have less worth or value. Mm -hmm. And my friend who is a wife and mother, her ultimate value still comes from her being a daughter of God. It doesn't come through her being a great wife or a great mother, even though she may be those things, but her worth is in Christ.
0: Susan Hunt and I co-authored a book called uh, "Aging with Grace: Flourishing mm-hmm. in an Anti-Aging Culture," and we talk a lot about this in the book. That flourishing does not mean doing more. It, it's yeah. not about what we are able to do, and I think that's one of the struggles of aging is. We we may have raised a bunch of kids, but we're not raising them anymore. And if our identity was in being a mother, we're gonna be in big trouble as the nest gets empty and those sorts of things. But it's in being, it's in being more in love with Jesus and, and becoming more like him. That's what flourishing is. So whether you're in a hospital room, a nursing home, or you're the grandmother with grandkids on your lap, you can still flourish no matter where you are when your identity is in him. And in Jesus, and so I think that also changes the way that you look at, um, like you said, the what you do is not gives you is not what gives you value. Your identity as a daughter of the King is unchanging, and how does that free you to see opportunities in the season of life, it, whether it's a short time or a long time?
1: I think that as I think about who I am in Christ and my security and who I am in Christ and that I am not trying to earn my worth, but that I am fully loved and fully safe in him. I can then say, okay, what does that prompt me towards? What is soaking in that love and believing the truth of that? What does that prompt me towards in terms of how I would love other people in terms of how I would offer my gifts and my time and the resources that I have been freely given by the Lord? Um, How can I offer that to others Um, and look for opportunities to reflect to others the love that he has given to
0: me? I really like that, the way that you're saying that, because it's not a matter of good works, you know, that we're doing, 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 but it's in response to grace and how we want, we don't want to waste our time with not thinking, being intentional being very intentional about this is an opportunity to reflect Christ, however that is. And you mentioned uh, the children that you have in your life. You know, mm-hmm. some people might look at that as, you know, somebody who has a bunch of kids that they're raising, they would might think, I, I want to be anywhere, but where there are a bunch of kids, but you have an opportunity and a gift to pour into the lives of children in a way that you might not. If you had your own house full of kids, so, and in, in reflection of Jesus, the way that Jesus has loved you. So, I think that's a great analogy there for us. When you thought uh, about marriage and children, that was gonna be part of your life. And you, at the beginning, you said that you, you, it's a struggle. Sometimes it's a struggle that that is not God's plan for you right now. You talk about lament. Tell, let's talk about what is lament. And why is it important to give yourself permission to be honest and to grieve over those things that you thought would be in your life, but are not apparently God's plan for you now?
1: Lament is bringing our sorrows, our griefs, our disappointments to God and talking to him about them, expressing them to him. And I think Many of us in the church have have gotten the message over the years that we need to show up to God with a smiling face and a happy heart and kind of everything in order and that we have to hide away all that other stuff. But that's not what scripture reflects for us. If we look at the Psalms, we see the psalmist lamenting, crying out to God, bringing questions, bringing even what sound like complaints sometimes before God. God is there to hear it and God is not bothered by that. In fact, he welcomes it and ministers to it. I think he has more of a problem when we're talking about him behind his back and grumbling behind his back than when we bring our sorrows to his feet and, and lay them down there and let him comfort us in those sorrows. And so that's, that's why lament is so important and has been such a crucial thing for me in wrestling through the questions and the disappointments and the sense of loss, the feelings of rejection that come um, in, in, in extended singleness, continually bringing that to him and just saying, God, I'm really sad about this, or God, I feel really lonely right now, or God, this isn't what I want. And, and just speaking that to him, saying that to him, writing it in my
0: journal and, letting him hear that and letting him minister to that. When um, we lost our son, Mark, I talked with a woman who was ahead of us in the journey. She would lost three sons. And in my first conversation with her, she, you know, I said, I don't even know what it means. She had said, when you get pa- past down the road, then things are going to be better. And, and I, I could take it from her because she was a credible witness of what real deep grief looks like. And I said, I don't even know what that looks like. And she said, you're going to understand God's love in a way you never have before. And I remember saying, I have no idea what you're even talking about. And I've been a women's Bible study teacher for Mm -hmm. 25 years. And, but I just felt so crushed by this grief. And she kind of chuckled and said, I, it's okay. (laughs) The Lord wants you to run to him with your questions. He's not afraid of your questions. Nothing is too hard for him. He welcomes them. And that was so freeing for me to realize that really lament is when you're running toward him. I think we can, like you said, we're talking behind his back when we're grumbling and we're mad and we're running away, but running to him with our hearts and our hands is, like you said, it's all through scripture. I don't know how we got off that pathway in the church. I, I just, I don't know because it is everywhere. <laughs> it, yes. And I, I think that's why, um, you know, I had a friend who said, I, uh, this is a while ago. And she said, I was going to a church where every Sunday it was all rah, rah, and just giving God the praise and all that. She said, I couldn't lift my hands. I, I couldn't, I was so broken by my life right then. And I felt guilty that this is the message I was getting, uh, that there was no room in me in in our church for grief or sorrow or anything like that. And I thought that's a poor statement against the church for our Mm -hmm. churches. They're the safe place. They need to be the safe place for broken people. And God encourages us. You mentioned some specific things like feeling alone. And why, why do you think it's important sometimes to identify what it is that is causing the sorrow in your heart where you take the bigger picture and you go down. And I think one of the ways that you talk about that in your book is you talk about ambiguous loss. So let's, why don't you tell us what you mean by that ambiguous loss?
1: Yeah. So ambiguous loss is when you are grieving the loss of a person, either a person who is physically present, but psychologically absent such as is the case with someone we love has Alzheimer's. They are with us in body, but their mind is so changed Mm -hmm. that the person that we once knew is not really there with us. Or a person is physically absent, but psychologically present. And in singleness, that is what many of us feel, is that there is, it feels like there is an empty seat at the table. Even though I don't have an actual husband, There is this, there's this sense of there being a missing person at the table. And that is a a concept that was really helpful for me to learn about because I think I had often felt a sense of grief and loss, but didn't feel permission to name what I was experiencing as grief because it wasn't like I had lost, had a husband and lost him. I had never had one. And and yet there was still this feeling inside of me that felt a lot like grief. And so the idea of ambiguous loss has given me freedom to name what I'm feeling as a type of grief. And then to bring that to the Lord, to bring that to him and lament, to talk about it with my community and people that I trust and to, to let them share that burden with me as well. Um, And that's been a very helpful, very helpful thing and and a place where I have received God's comfort in that as I have brought that to him.
0: I think that's very helpful. It's like an eye opener for someone who's grieving and they can't pinpoint and they talk to themselves like you shouldn't be like this. We have talked a lot about the loss, but in your book, you mention preaching to our self-pity. What does that mean? And how does that balance out? We're lamenting, but then there's a place of self pity that we might go to. What does preaching to our self pity look like? So, the definition of self pity that
1: I use in the book is a self indulgent, self indulgent dwelling on our own sorrows. So, I think it's when we get stuck looking inside of ourselves or looking at our situation and begin to despair, begin to tell ourselves, Nobody loves me. I'm all alone. God doesn't even love me. And we forget all of the things that we know to be true. We forget the way that God has shown his love for us. We forget uh, the ways that people around us have shown his love to us, who've been with us in this. And we begin to believe those lies. And that is where the difference between self pity is, is looking inwards at our sorrows and getting stuck there. Mm -hmm. Whereas lament is taking those sorrows and bringing them to the Lord. And so that's where with our self-pity, when we get stuck in that and and I can do a self-pity spiral with the best of them. And I need to know what that looks like. And when I'm headed in that direction and be able to say this, I call to mind, as it says in Lamentations, we have to call to mind what is true. So I have to remind myself that there is reason for hope that God's love never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. And I have to tell myself that. And sometimes I need to ask someone else to tell me Mm -hmm. um, if if I can't quite get there myself, but to not get stuck in that downward spiral, which will end up cutting me off from the Lord, cutting me off from my community, but reminding myself of what's true.
0: I remember my husband used to say, like I'm inviting you to my pity party, or I'll say, I'm refusing your invitation to your pity party. Uh, <laughs> <No. yes. laughs> no. And uh, that was a good picture of a pity party. Where, and you want others to join you. You want others to come wow. alongside of you and say, I agree with you. This is terrible. And all of those things. So you're right. Preaching to ourselves the word and the psalmist does that a lot. You know, yeah. why are you cast down? My, my, oh, my soul. And I will yet praise you. I love that passage too. It's yeah. oh Lord? I'm coming, I'm coming, I'll get there. But for yeah. this moment, I'm just broken. So Jenny Lynn, as we wrap up our time, I would love for you to speak to that single person who is listening right now, who is really disappointed in their singleness. And they feel really despairing that their life right now, they just can't imagine that this is the way they have to live. The rest of their lives. What kind of hope can you give? I mean, first of all, I want to say
1: to that person, I get it, and I've been there, and I I will be there still on some days. I'm sure that it is hard, and uh, but I want to remind you that that you are not alone. That you have a God who sees you and who cares for you and who hears you, and you have people around you who are with you in this, even though that may take some work that may take some intentionality and leaning into that community, but the Lord has opportunities for you to use the desires of your heart, your desire for relationship, for serving others, for sharing your life with others. He will honor those desires, maybe not in marriage, but in plenty of other ways that He has for you. Um, So I'd encourage you to look up to Him and look around to your community. Um, And see what God would do, even with your sorrow and disappointment.
0: Jenny Lynn, thank you so much for our conversation. It is such a delight to talk with you. I wish we could talk more. But for those of you who want to dig deeper, make sure you get a copy of Jenny Lynn's book called Singleness, Living Faithfully. And you can connect with Jenny Lynn at her blog called Carefully Chosen. So if you had some questions you wanted to ask her about the book, be sure to stop by there. And I'm also going to include all this information in the show notes for uh, today's podcast on our website at markinc.org, M-A-R-K-I-N-C.org. When you visit markinc.org, you're going to find all kinds of free resources that are designed to help turn your heart toward Jesus that offer the help and hope of the gospel. Again, I'm Sharon Betters. This is the Help and Hope podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for listening to this Help and Hope podcast produced by Mark Inc. Ministries. Be sure to like, comment, and subscribe. Visit markinc.org, M-A-R-K-I-N-C.org to find additional free resources on a variety of topics. Online counseling services are also available through Anchored Hope Biblical Counseling by visiting helpandhopenow.org. That's helpandhopenow.org. Download the Help & Hope app on your mobile device. Hope is just one click away.